0: Hi, welcome back to another reading from The World from Orion. So let's pick up where we left off. Um, did we read chapter four yet? Yeah, let me see. Okay, chapter four. The second coming, hardly are those words out when a vast image out of spiritus mundi troubles my sight somewhere in the sands of the desert, a shape with lion body and the head of a man, a glaze blank and pitiless as the sun is moving its slow thighs while all about it, real shadows of the indignant desert birds. The second coming, William Butler Geese. Written accounts confirm that during the heat of the summer, it was not unusual to find William Flinders Peary in his maroon underwear digging in the hot desert sands. Leonine, rough-hewn, bearded, and passionate about how an excavation should be conducted, Petrie had no fear of getting dirty or sleeping with mummy stored under his bed. Excavating for 45 years in Egypt, he had an uncanny sense of delivery and discovery aiding his thirst for knowledge. The British archeologist and Egyptologist was largely self-taught with no formal education, yet it was his precise record keeping and meticulous preservation efforts that made posterity call him the father of modern archeology. span He spent from 1880 to 1883, studying and excavating the Great Pyramid of Giza where he would sift and examine each shovel of sand. Sir Flinders Petrie, author of The Pyramids and Temples of Giza, 1883, discovered that the base circuit of the pyramid represented the Earth's three separate lengths of years. The solar tropical year, the sidereal year, and the animalistic year. To William Finders Petrie, the Great Pyramid was a symbol of a glorious past and a higher spiritual reality. Petrie's exactitude and scientific excavation techniques matched his integrity for gold digging and grave robbing were inferior pursuits for a mind questing for an ancient civilization's hollow knowledge. He was certainly unwrapped layers of pitch and cloth to reveal rolls of gold, barrel, and carnelian amulets, rings, birds, and lazuli figurines. Sir Petrie glorified in the ancient grandeur of Egypt and promptly cataloged and sent his artifacts to either the Cairo Museum or the British Museum. Still, as was the custom of most archaeologists, Petrie personally amassed a collection of 80,000 Egyptian artifacts, the Petrie Museum, which he gifted to the University College of London when he died in 1948. Surprisingly, one uncommon artifact was never cataloged for a museum. It was a small oval box which Petrie had found in the king's chamber of the Great Pyramid, and he gave it to his granddaughter on her seventh birthday. The ancient ivory box was decorated with three hieroglyphs at the top that signified the name of the god Amun, a bird wearing the feather of the goddess Isis in the center, flanked by the inverted half moon for bread loaves and the Ankh symbol for life. As a child, Lucia treasured the oval box her grandfather gave her, for inside the finely painted relic beneath the polished gold sheet that served as a reflector was a definite quantity of white shimmering sand from the Egyptian desert. The sand was magical to Lucia, so magical that as she aged her obsession with Egypt after the manner of her grandfather provoked her to read everything about the land of the pharaohs her research proved to her that only a fool could doubt egypt's astronomical erudition she discovered the great pyramid is the most accurately aligned structure in existence and faces due north with only sixtieths of a degree of error the center of earth's landmass which is the east west parallel in the north south meridian that crosses the most land intersects in only two places on Earth, the Great Pyramid and the ocean. Fact after fact demonstrated Egypt's superiority. Consider that on midnight of the autumnal equinox in the year of the Great Pyramid's completion, a line extending from the apex pointed to the star, Alion, which some present day scientists believe our solar system revolves around also, five of Egypt's pyramids on earth the positions of five of the seven brightest stars in Orion. The three pyramids of Khufu, Khafra, and Menka'udra for the belt of the constellation. The pyramid of Nebka at Abu Rawash corresponding to the star Saif. The pyramid at Zawat al-Araina corresponding to the star Bellatrix. Their architecture on earth mirrors that of the stars Lucia learned that the Egyptians possessed a sophisticated knowledge of hydrostatics and hydraulic engineering. For during the reign of Menes, they constructed a lofty dike so effective that it actually turned the Nile waters eastward to Memphis. Their architectural feats, the temples of Philae, Abu Simbil, Dendera, Edfu, and Karnak, including the timeless grandeur of lofty pyramids, still baffle the modern world. Historians today wonder how a Stone Age culture could create such monuments to time, how the primitive mortal hand could frame the symmetry of the pyramids, the joints barely perceptible, the casing stones still in position, the centered cement indestructible. Yet despite their knowledge, Western historians claim Greece is the pivotal nexus of cultural and artistic achievements. Always searching through the opinionated middle of history, Lucia discovered that the Greek historian Herodotus was the first to write about the seven wonders of the world, and later Greek historians follow suit with their descriptions. Five of the seven wonders were built by the Greeks, yet of all seven wonders, only one remains, the Great Pyramid of Giza. On a more personal level, Herodotus wrote in book two that the black-skinned Egyptians and the Ethiopians have practiced circumcision since time immemorial the Phoenicians and the Syrians of Palestine themselves admit that they learned to the practice from the Egyptians. Like Grandfather Petrie, Lucia believed modern chemists, astronomers, mathematicians, philologists, painters, and architects should look to Egypt. The origin of their arts and sciences for knowledge. In light of this wisdom, Greece's purloined contributions look like the chopped liver of a Prometheus. As a consequence of her research, Lucia began to believe that the white sand in her ivory box may have had a special use in Egypt. Why else would it come concealed beneath the gold reflector? It must have had a purpose. To unravel the mystery, she analyzed the chemical composition of the ancient powder and then fashioned a partial thesis for gross to swallow so she could take a leave to investigate the sand's properties She then hired John and I as research assistants. Like her astute grandfather, Lucia's intuition proved to be a great advantage in a world of scientists and scholars who sometimes ignored Aristotle's statement that reason is subject to error. Chapter 5. Look out new world, here we come. Brave, intrepid, and then some pioneers of maximum. Audacity whose resumes show that we are just the team. To live where others merely dream. Building up a head of steam on the trail we blaze. Changing legend into fact, we shall ride into history. Turning myth into truth. We shall surely gaze on the sweet unfolding of an antique mystery all will be revealed on the trail we blaze. Lyrics to The Trail We Blaze by Elton John. John and I packed just enough clothes and supplies, hiking boots, a jacket for the cool evenings, a couple research notebooks, and two cases of coarse beer, which we were now drinking and spilling all over the old Bronco as it lurched up the last dusty road to Lucia's house. The sun burned relentlessly above the mountains along the road, which curved sharply to the right and the landmark we were looking for soon splashed into view. A natural granite tiered waterfall spilled out of the cliff's rocky jawbones like a huge swirling tongue and a black stone face. Against the walled sky of Amethyst Mountains it rose before us like a mutant living thing, writhing, eyeless, menacing in its sight. Defensively, John swerved sharply almost the missing road to Lucia's, then he downshifted the jeep to scale the last narrow incline, where a red tile roof separated a tan two-storied house from the indigo sky. In the west, the red sun was setting, muting the purple mountains that blended into the tawny gold desert below. Central to the old-world design of the southwest, a double-arched entrance with potted pindo palms Landscaped the walkway leading east past the front door to a glass laboratory where Professor Farrell sat writing at a cluttered desk. Through the lab windows behind her, we could see a large, inviting swimming pool, a cool oasis of glistening cobalt. John clambered out of the jeep first past the main entrance to the open lab door a couple of beers made him over anxious for he knew lucia had analyzed the sand in her ancient egyptian box lucia i want to know what the composition is he said as his eyes searched her desk for a glimpse of the magic compound in the past we had worked with lucia on several of her genetic experiments so John felt comfortable calling her by her first name. It is something I didn't expect, said Lucia, motioning us to a small vial of the stuff of the lab counter past her desk. Rhodium and iridium are the elements found in carrot, grape, or aloe juices. Blood, root, lecithin granules, St. John's wort, blue-green algae, watercress, almond, and apricot seeds, Mexican wild yam, flaxseed oil, shark cartilage, and pig brain. She took a breath and continued. The major uh, ingredients of this powder are rhodium and iridium, with trace percentages of platinum, silver, and gold. When I heard her say gold, she had my attention, but John looked puzzled as she continued. The element iridium is found in gravel deposits with platinum and used with osmium to tip gold pin points, and also used in cancer irradiation, hypodermic needles, and helicopter spark plugs. She paused. Rhodium is obtained as a byproduct of nickel production and used as a coating to prevent wear on high quality science equipment and with platinum to make thermocouples. Both are transition metals with cubic centered crystal structures, as are gold, silver, and platinum. For a moment, Lucia's voice became distant, fading into oblivion as I looked at the sun, a red half moon in the mountains that was dying at, in the darkening sky. It might have been the effect of night rising that made the sun coalesce into a triangulated crystal as it sunk into the earth. I wasn't sure. Then I realized I missed a lot of what Lucia was saying, but John was attentive and she continued explaining the Egyptians were aware of iron, gold, silver, and copper. She then said that they had easily processed the natural elements found in the earth by sifting the dirt out of the desert sand and the result was the soft white powder, which she was now emptying from the vial into a petri dish. It had a turquoise blue fluorescent glow that was hypnotic. Obviously, this desert powder has some interesting properties, I mused, as I bent down to smell it, but it had no odor. It looked like dynamite, an invention that made a fortune for Albert Noble. He just packaged an existing explosive in a less combustible form. Actually, humans have been interested in blowing each other up since the creation of Greek fire. The Greeks simply added salt, peter to combustible mixtures already in use then the 11th century chinese mixed sulfur potassium nitrate and charcoal to get black gunpowder in the 19th century a swiss chemist discovered nitrocellulose but its unstable manufacture led to unfortunate deaths. but that did not stop them in 1847 an italian chemist concocted nitroglycerin and it was this volatile compound that alfred noble attempted to stabilize Even though an explosion killed his younger brother in 1864, he persisted until he mixed the nitro with a clay that stabilized it. Sure, he had reservations about the dynamite's potential for destructive military use. So now what? Had the invention of dynamite really conferred the greatest benefit on humanity? Was it the most important chemical discovery or improvement? That was the criteria for the chemistry Nobel Prize, Apparently, old Alfred's conscience must have bothered him, so he fundled the Nobel Prizes for physics, chemistry, medicine, and literature, along with the prize for peace. Lost in the intensity of my thought, I watched John and Lucia quietly reviewing the research as another cyclone of trivia spun through my mind. Not everyone who deserves a Nobel Prize gets one. Leo Tosti. One of the greatest writers of the 19th century was nominated in 1901 for literature and again in 1902, but the judges passed him over because Tolstoy rejected church and government authority. He championed nonviolent protest and considered warfare as a wholesale murder. Although wealthy and a member of the Russian nobility, Count Leo Tolstoy gave away money to thousands of peasants who remembered his generosity by lining the streets at his funeral. After being turned down twice for the Nobel Prize, Tolstoy simply said it was okay because he regarded money as the source of every evil. But not everyone accepts the Nobel Prize. The philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre declined the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1964, rejecting the $53,000 award. Sartre said a writer must refuse to allow himself to be transformed into an institution, even if it takes place in the most honorable form. In contrast, Nobel laureate Fritz Haber, who invented the process for turning air into nitrogen fertilizer for food production, accepted the 1918 chemistry prize and his maxim was a scientist belongs to his country in times of war and to all mankind in times of peace. For this reason, Haber pioneered the use of poison gas in World War I. In April of 1915, the German army used chlorine gas for the first time against the French at Ypres in Belgium. The French soldiers saw billowy clouds of yellow-green toxins drifting toward them, and then they inhaled a peppery pineapple odor that left them with chest pain, burning throats, and a slow death by asphyxiation. When these attacks began, the Allied troops wore masks of cotton pads soaked in urine to neutralize the chlorine. Fritz Haber directed the poison gas offense with his wife, Clara, also a chemist, must have resented for she killed herself with his pistol. This tragedy, along with the legacy of chemical warfare and the fact that nitrogen now contaminates our environment, has polluted Haber's contribution. Still, it is interesting that five months after the Germans pioneered the use of chlorine gas at Ypres, the British lost the Battle of Luce even though they used chlorine gas and greatly outnumbered the Germans. Under the direction of General Sir Douglas Hyde, the British released tons of the accessory, the code name for chlorine, and the toxic chemical blew back on the British troops because of the wind, causing about 2,600 casualties and seven deaths. Despite the 1899 Hague Convention's prohibition against employing poison or poison arms, the International Peace Treaty could not stop the Germans or the Allies from using poison gas, nor would it stop future aggressors from chemical warfare, I mused. Just then, a pulse of cool air blew into the lab as John opened the door and walked outside into the dusk. He lit up a cigarette and the smoke swirled upward like quicksilver in the red glow left by the sun. So it seems that peace treaties against poison gas and chemical manipulation are useless in the modern world of warfare. But to me, this kind of uncivilized behavior is scientific misconduct that needs to be stopped. Concerned and hopeful that war would die, my mind groped into the future for I was precognitive. As futurity flashed forth, I knew that chemists at the renowned University of Chicago would synthesize a new explosive, a molecule of eight carbon atoms to which they would attach nitro groups. This highly combustible cube with an explosive energy content greater than any known non-nuclear device Will become a reality in the year 2000. They will call it octanitrocubane, a real feather in the college caps, or should I say, war helmet, for the US Defense Department and the National Science Foundation were the funding sources of the research. The inventors would claim that octanitrocubane would burn into carbon dioxide and nitrogen upon detonation. They would casually claim it can kill you, but it can't be toxic. And even the American Chemical Society's chemistry magazine would herald the synthesis of octanitrocubane as one of the year's chemistry milestones. Things would certainly come full circle if the inventors of this explosive cube were nominated for the Nobel Chemistry Prize. Bear with me because along with being precognitive about world events, I remember trivia, unusual details and unique information. My need to recall gets especially bad when I'm nervous as I'm now about the potential use of Lucia's powder. John seemed concerned also, but with John, his concern was linked to an obsession to unveil some mystic truth that would improve human life, not destroy it. I watched him flicker his cigarette toward the first star and then he came through the door talking. What makes you think the Egyptians processed this powder? He asked, moving closer to watch Lucia carefully pick up the patri dish of indecent powder with two hands as if it were Octonature cubing. With her auburn hair in her eyes, she looked like a savage fire priestess making an offering to a God at a snake shrine. There was something ominous about her undivided attention to the, that powder. When my grandfather excavated the Great Pyramid, he found this all over the floor of the king's chamber, she said, as she funnelled the powder back into the vial, tapping the lid tightly short. I felt a sudden relief until she said, the Egyptians may have used it in their initiation rites. John studied her carefully and I was silent, but Lucia would say no more. She darted inside into an adjoining room where she paced the sand in a safe, cemented to the floor seconds later she emerged to promise that we would learn more in the morning then she told us we had second floor accommodations saying that we were welcome to the food and pool but that she had to work tonight after she went back to the lab we drank most of our beer and grilled a couple of mesquite burgers for dinner because lucia does not cook